Hi, this is Sarah Burns, and you're listening to the My Modern Met Top Artist Podcast. I'm thrilled to speak with my next guest, Bisa Butler, an artist who creates monumental contemporary quilts that are historical portraits of Black people whose stories may have been forgotten or completely overlooked in history. Bisa uses colorful African print fabric like you would paint pigment and brings the people that she's seen in black and white photographs to life. During my chat with Bisa, we talked about the impact that her time spent at Howard University had on her and how it encouraged her to go into teaching so as to make a positive impact on the Black community. She went on to graduate school, and it's there that she first began to quilt. Over time, she's perfected her process, working for as long as 200 hours to finish one piece. The resulting quilts are visually spectacular and also extremely meaningful as they highlight the quiet dignity of her subjects while affirming the equal value of all humans. We'll also hear from you, our listeners, in our new Ask the Artist segment. In case you missed it, we've been sharing who will be appearing on the podcast, like Bisa, and asking you for your queries. Each episode, we ask them what you'd like to know. If you want to ask a question for future episodes, make sure you're following us on Instagram at Top Artist Podcast or subscribe to our newsletter by visiting podcast.mymodernmet.com. We send emails about who we're interviewing and when. So without further ado, here's my chat with Bisa. Hi, Bisa. Thank you for joining us today on the Top Artist Podcast. We're really excited to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Sarah. I have been looking forward to this, and we have been talking about this for, I feel like, quite a while now. Well, why don't we jump right in? Your work is part art, part craft, part storytelling that is all centered around contemporary quilting. And I can't wait to dive into all that. But I want to start by briefly talking about your background. You were always interested in art and pursued it while at Howard University, obtaining your undergraduate degree. Can you start by telling us about your time there? My time at Howard University really, really, I think, encapsulates a very 90s kind of feel. Um, I went into Howard in 91, and it was an eye-opener for me because my father, I'm in simultaneously first generation. My father's from Ghana and my mother's from New Orleans. But I grew up in New Jersey, so I'm like a northern kid through and through. And I didn't have an experience with a historically black college or university. And so I get down to Howard and there's this strong vibe of black pride and the interest in um, our African ancestry. And then also a really strong interest in the, the black philosophers from back in the day, like W.E.B. Du Bois or Frederick Douglass, and then like the radical 1960s philosophers like H. Rat Brown and Stokely Carmichael. And so it was quite a culture shock, but it was at the same time affirming and, and beautiful for me to be exposed to all these thoughts and literature and ideas that had never really, I had never really thought about before I got to Howard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've said that your professors were part of Afrocobra, yes. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was very interesting and really speaks to your work today. I can see influences of it in your work. 
Sure. Well, my professors in the Department of Art or the School of Fine Arts were from a group called Afrocobra, which stood for the African Commune of Bad and Relevant Artists in the mid-1960s. These young 20-something Black artists got together and they decided that they wanted to be like the visual arm to the Black power movement that really originated in California in like the, the Watts neighborhoods. They wanted to be able to make this like visual propaganda to support the Black power movement. And so they formed their own manifesto. And I think that was probably popular at that time. For You get in a group, you have to have a manifesto. <laughs> but they were very much focused around having an educated idea of what it means to be Black in this country. And what do Black people need at that time? I mean, the 60s were the first time, well, I would say it was a resurgence from the Harlem Renaissance of Black people saying, yes, we are American, but we are also of African descent and we're proud of that. So that went for everything then. I want to wear African fabrics. I am proud that my skin is dark. I'm not going to straighten my hair. I'm proud of the fact that it's kinky. And as a matter of fact, let me wear it in this huge afro. And so their manifesto was like related to that. Black art artists of color should show their people in a positive light. Because before that, a lot of the artwork that was for or about Black people would have like an assimilationist thread, you know, paint very light-skinned Black people who barely look Black, show them in situations that are more akin to a European artist, like on a horse, I don't know, but like mm -hmm. as looking and styled like they would be European royalty, totally disregarding that this Black person had their own culture and that maybe something as simple as showing a Black family having dinner is a valid type of artwork. So it doesn't have to be particularly noble or wealthy, and it doesn't have to come from a European standpoint. So that kind of threat, my professors were coming with that, but it wasn't just in the art department. It was in everything. We were in English class and we would be reading like Arna Bontemps, or we would be reading um, Maya Angelou or Angela Davis. And those were included in the canon of our like our literature. It wasn't like this was a specific African-American lit class. Mm -hmm. It was like when you took lit, part of your curriculum included black voices. And it wasn't just it wasn't solely black voices because Howard is a school in Washington, D.C. And it's been around since the 1840s. So this school was made for free Black people or newly freed Black people to be able to assimilate into European culture. And it was started by white missionaries and abolitionists to help Black people. And over time, it became this fountain of Black thought. As a matter of fact, they refer to Howard as the Mecca. Like we refer to it when, when people say, oh, you're going to the Mecca, you're talking about that you're going to Howard. So this world of thought was all around me. And it was, I would say that we were all indoctrinated <laughs> into this type of thought, but that would be also putting it too simply because they had all kinds of kids at Howard. There was such a wide variety in personality that not everybody absorbed that, that those Black philosophies like I did. Mm -hmm. 
but it was because I was open and interested. I was fascinated by that, that I took it in. What did you take away from that to creating your work? And how did that propel you into graduate school at Montclair State? It shaped my work in the way that I realized that art had this power and that we as Black people, we had a responsibility to try to help our people. I mean, you're privileged to be able to go to college and you're privileged that your parents can pay for this or you have a scholarship. And that's a privilege in as well because you are brighter than the average. And so you've been given this special thing. And because I was in Washington, D.C., which is, was at the time a primarily Black city, there were a lot of people who did not have those privileges that we would walk through. It was very much a city school. And at that time, in the 90s, I think D.C. was the murder capital of the United States. So we're very aware that Black people were suffering. And so I was really aware of our people being ravaged and that art giving you the power to do something to help people. So if looking at a piece of artwork makes somebody feel good about themselves, then you've done something. You know, there's a terrible feeling when you feel powerless against racism, sexism, or discrimination. I think that's when people like give in to despair. And then they'll just, I guess, go on. And there are people like that who will wax on about the man did this and the man did that. I think that at Howard, they were trying to give us tools to be able to survive as Black people in this country. And one of the things that makes me feel fulfilled is to be able to do something for other people. And that, that did help me into grad school because I ended up be going to grad school to become an art teacher. And that was, again, that idea that I always knew I wanted to work with all types of students, but I knew that I wanted to work in an urban school setting. And I thought, who are the kids that need it the most? A teacher who cares and a teacher who loves what they're doing and wants to share this love with them. I lived and grew up in the suburbs. So in a way, I was somewhat insulated from the needs of kids in urban schools. But when I was newly married, I started substitute teaching in Philadelphia. And I saw things that were just like shocking that it would still go on. I'm talking about simple things like standing in front of a classroom and saying, okay, so we're gonna start studying African art, let's say. How many of you are of African descent and having maybe like, maybe a third of the class raised their hand, but this is a all black classroom. Oh, wow. So the kids are just not cognizant not taught that, or maybe unconsciously being taught to be ashamed of that because of the images of mass media. If you see, when, when I grew up in the 80s, there were a lot of commercials about Ethiopia and that the country was starving and the starving Ethiopian children. So that used to be an image that was used to invoke pity so that you could contribute but it also became an image of shame because it would be flipped around. And then kids would say to me and my sisters and brothers, you know, oh, that's why you have flies on your eyes or that's why you all are starving. So there was this shame to be of African descent and shame of being the descendant of slaves. 
And that this is still happening now, though. I mean, I just stopped teaching four years ago. So we need reinforcement to be like, no, you are okay. You are beautiful just as you are and you're valid. So that thread started with my childhood and was reinforced at Howard and continued until I was in the classroom. And then now that I'm out of the classroom, but I still like I'm following those same philosophies. When I was heavily involved in photography, there was nothing more satisfying than seeing an image I'd created on display in public. But what if you could see your creativity unleashed on a large scale? I'm talking billboard size scale. It's not as far-fetched as it seems. Fine Art America, the world's largest online art marketplace, is giving artists the chance to see their work on a billboard in a major metropolitan area in the United States. All you have to do is enter their 2021 billboard art contest. Anyone can submit up to three images using any medium by August 31st. A panel of judges will pick 20 images to appear on billboards across the U.S. this fall and winter. Best of all, entering the contest is free. How cool is that? To enter the Fine Art America 2021 Billboard Art Contest, go to fineartamerica.com contest. You have until August 31st to submit your artwork. And again, it's free. What are you waiting for? Head over today and you may just see your creativity on a billboard. You have a great quote that you said recently. You said, I want my artwork to tell the truth about who we are. And I feel that, you know, you drew that in your quilt portraits. Aside from just being really awe-inspiring to look at, your work is centered around African-American people whose stories have been neglected to be told. Can you talk about that and beginning that series, you know, this massive body of work, I mean, both in terms of how many pieces you've created and their size, some of them are very large. When I made my very first quilt, it was a portrait from my grandmother. And it was also a, a class assignment in grad school. We had fibers at Montclair State. And we did felting and weaving, crochet, surface design, and we did a small quilt. It was about the size of like an oven mitt. So my final assignment, I thought, okay, I know what I'll do. I'll do a portrait of my grandmother in the quilt style. And then I'll also be able to give something nice to her. So like the original motivation for making artwork was that I wanted my grandmother to know that I was proud of her. And she was, her health was fading. She needed um a kidney transplant, but she was past the age. You don't get a kidney transplant when you're older than 80. So I knew that she wouldn't be with us that much longer. And I wanted to do something for her to show her that I was proud of her. And so after that, it wasn't like I had a market for my work. I was making my friends and family, people around me, my students, like it was people in my immediate vicinity. And then I started working with the Claire Oliver Gallery in um, 2017. And I had to think about what type of artwork did I want to make that I would sell in a big market to people who are not my friends and family. These are not like my friend's mom asking me to create a portrait of her grandfather. And I just started looking at images online. I just Googled, you know, Black people, Black images. And this is before I really examined even why I was looking for those things. But I was looking for that connection and something that would appeal to me. It was only like later, now as I reflect, that I sort of was recreating my family photo album. 
in other people. Like I, my father pointed this out to me, but every time I do a family, no matter if it's a big family of like 10 people or just a small nuclear family, it's always um, a boy and two girls. Yeah. Interesting. Which is what we had in our house was a boy and two girls. But I didn't do that was completely unconscious. And I think that every artist you do that, you're constantly reflecting your story or projecting your story onto other people. Looking up black people, I realized that I was drawn to black and white photos, the type that I used for my grandmother's portrait. And beyond that, when I was a little girl in the early seventies, everything was black and white. So I realized how much that had affected the way I saw the world. I've always been extremely imaginative. And I was always the kid that would say, like, what if this? And what if that? So black and white photography allows me to be like, what if? What if the colors are exactly what I want them to be? What if they say what I want them to say? So that value scale of looking at a black and white photo, an older photo, drew me in. And now my artwork very much is related to this idea of the Black community. Who are we? And that idea of the Black photo album, because a Black photo album is not a diary. You know, it's not your most tender moments, your most raw and private moments. It's not the dirty laundry. My artwork is more like you were invited to somebody's home And then they brought out the photo album and they were just showing you the snapshots. These are the images that they want you to see. These are the images that they feel good about, that they reflect about. Um, Even when people are dead and gone and you see this happy moment, you know, of your baby brother's christening or, you know, your your mother and her, her aunt's first communion. Those are the things that I'm drawn to because they comfort me and they make me feel good. So I'm still doing that in my artwork now. Pretty much every artwork I've seen of yours, the subjects are always dressed so impeccably. You know, they're wearing suits and like beautiful dresses made even more beautiful by the color that you use Mm -hmm. and then the fabrics. Mm -hmm. How is it bringing them to life through color? Does that Add something else to the photo, your source material, in, in reimagining them through this way? I think so. I mean, some of these photos are so gorgeous, though. You know, I might be looking at a Dorothea Lange or Gordon Parks photo. So the photo itself is striking. So mostly I'm looking at it like a challenge. Like, I have to at least do justice to the original photographer's intent. And then the person in the photo, a lot of times the photos that they took were documentary photos. So they weren't like on anybody's best day. They might have been standing in line for free soup and it was the height of the depression. But I see the beauty in them. And I think the color allows other people to see it, too. In a way, we somehow when we look at black and white things, we do think about, oh, that was so long ago. Oh, that's like ancient times. And it's kind of like separated from us in our color world. And by me recreating that image in color, it's like, it's now though. Yes, this was the 1920s or 30s, but it's also right now because this person no longer looks like a figment from the past. They look like somebody who could walk up to you right now and talk to you. And I like to blur that line between the past and the present and who is dead and who is living, like that there is no line. Yeah, they have such an incredible energy to them. 
and kind of taking a step back to talk about how you create these works. I've spent a lot of time admiring all their intricacies, mm-hmm. just how you layer the fabric and you convey this really amazing sense of three-dimensionality that's unexpected with quilting. Can you give us a macro overview of how you work? Yes. So how I create my work is how a painter creates their work. I start out with choosing a subject. And for me, that's primarily a photograph. And then I create a sketch on either on top of the photograph itself or right next to the photo so that I'm looking at and drawing contour lines around the light and dark shades of the figure. So I'm making something that looks more like a contour line drawing. And then from that line drawing, I select my palette, which a painter would do too, except I'm selecting a stack of fabric. And the fabrics that I'm choosing are twofold. I'm choosing certain colors because I want to use paint like the modern artists I studied when I was in college, like Picasso with the the blue period or the rose period. I want to use color like Van Gogh. When you think of bright or yellow or oranges, they had their ideas that those colors were warm and that they made people feel more uplifted or more cheerful, maybe even more nurturing colors like the sunshine. And then cool colors go along with colors that deal with blue and water, cool things like ice. And then the mood to go with that, you might be more somber or my like, I'm using words that I'm saying cool because I mean the feeling of cool, like a cool person, but then also the cool as the temperature. (laughs) So I want to use color to say something about the person that I'm portraying. And a lot of the photos that I choose, I don't know that person's name. I don't know anything about their personality. All I know is the expression on their face and what I see. So I'm trying to observe them very carefully. And it might take me about 200 hours to finish a piece. Mm -hmm. So I'm really deep looking, deep diving at this person, at subtle nuances that might tell me who they were. If they have a twinkle in their eye, then I want to portray that. And I'm using African fabrics to say these people are more than just a person in Mississippi during the Depression who didn't have a lot of money. But this person is also somebody of African descent who has an entire legacy of people behind them. Not necessarily, I'm not one of those people who are like, we're all kings and queens. No, you may not have been kings and queens, but you had people and you had history. You didn't just sprout up in Mississippi like that. And so the fabrics that I'm choosing, for instance, there was, I did a, a, a wedding couple that I called broom jumpers. And the title refers to in slavery times when black people were not necessarily allowed to wed, or if the people who owned them allowed them to wed, they might do a simple ceremony by putting a broom on the ground and then you hold hands and jump over it and then you're married. So my broom jumpers, I've used West African fabric that symbolized marriage and love and commitment. And the African fabrics are cool because they come with allegories already. So it's like supporting my story. Mm -hmm. There's a fabric with two little birds in a cage and one is flying out. And I use that fabric a lot. It's made by a company called Vlisco and it's called Si Tu Sur Je Sur. If you leave, I leave. And the symbolism that African women assign to it 
well, first of all, the company that made it, they were just making birds in a cage. You know, they weren't like, I'm making this to have a specific philosophy. Mm -hmm. When it gets to the African marketplace, the women who sell that fabric say, I'm going to call this situsu or jusur. And it, to us, it symbolizes if a man steps out of his marriage, steps out on his wife, that the wife is going to step out too. So it's a warning to the husband to be faithful. Mm-hmm. Or it could be warning to the wife to be faithful. And so when I use fabric like that on the broom jumpers, it helps support the story that or this narrative that I'm trying to create around this young couple who I really did not know and don't know much about, but I'm trying hard to get a story about them out. It sounds like you must spend just a a lot of time considering yeah, not only the color relationships, but what you're talking about with these motifs on the fabric itself. How long do you spend doing that? That takes a long time. To be honest, out of if it's 200 hours to do one quilt, probably 150 hours of that are spent just deciding what I want to go where. And I'm very much like involved in the design sense. If I want to show that this couple is more romantic in their romantic phase of their life. They're newlyweds and I'm using a lot of pinks and reds to show like passion and love. I have to be aware that everything in there can't be pink and red. Otherwise, you may not be able to see them. So I'm just very aware of like what color is next to what. I don't want a big pattern, all big patterns, because then again, they're camouflaged. Or I want some bold patterns and some tiny, subtle patterns. So I'm constantly trying to decide what looks good next to the other thing. Sounds like a puzzle almost. Yeah. You've kind of got an idea of what you want to say, and then you're picking the things that would best make it all come together. Exactly. Exactly. We have a listener segment called Ask the Artist. So we have several questions from our listeners. The Instagram account Young Black and Aware wants to know, who is another Black artist who has inspired you? And they'd like to know in the past and then now, contemporary. A really big influence on me from the past. Well, she's the past and the present is uh, Faith Rangold. She's a really well-known African-American painter and quilter. Um, She's still living and she's in her 90s. And she started her artwork, though, back in the 70s and was really like prominent, pushing feminist art, pushing the feminist agenda and like demanding that women get recognition in the arts. I also love Alma Thomas and Elizabeth Catlett. And I love the the um, the artists like Romare Bearden and Jacob Lawrence, because we looked at them in school at Howard, I think, like students in primarily white institutions might look at Michelangelo and da Vinci. Like we looked at Jacob Lawrence and Romare Bearden, like the fathers of, of Black art. And artists that I love today, I really love this young artist. Her name is Shabalala Self. She works in fiber as well. She makes these huge canvases really focused around the female body. It's the black and the female body, but her work is really avant-garde. I love Basquiat and Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring. 
I love both of them. I don't know if that's the past or the present because they feel present. They do. Right, even though that they're past. But I love the way, I myself am a quilter, right? So it wasn't until more recently that quilting, or maybe even still to some people, was not considered a fine art. It was considered a craft. It was considered women's work. And then even among some people was considered like old timey Negro work. It wasn't something that people thought belonged in museums and art galleries. So I really relate to the street artists and their movement that we don't really care if you accept our artwork, but we're going to put it up and we're going to put it all over. And they were creating this whole canon of artwork that was like outside of the strict fine art world. And I think that that made them even stronger because then they weren't bound to the same rules. Mm -hmm. So my artwork, my own quilting can be strong because I wasn't bound within this idea of what's in now or what's popular or what should my artwork look like. Yeah, you came at it from a very kind of organic place. Yeah. And one last question. What's the best piece of advice that you have for young artists looking to get their work seen? The best thing to do, you have to be in it to win it. So you're going to have to, and it's not easy, but you're going to have to ask people to critique your artwork and to look at it. And you're going to have to exhibit in those local art festivals and submit your artwork for jury. It's other people's critique of what you're doing, but people who understand you and are trying to give you a fair critique, it's going to help you to get better. And you have to be in those festivals, whether you just have like a little card table and you have some artwork up, it's important because that human interaction is necessary. Other people are going to look at your artwork and they're going to critique it again. And then some people are going to buy it. And some people are going to tell their friends about it and they're going to give you their card. They're going to give you recommendations. So without that human interaction, it's going to be difficult. And I know now in times of COVID, the best thing that we have is social media. You know, you don't have to put up a card table in the park like I did and have your artwork keep blowing off the table. (laughs) (laughs) You have a virtual card table now. Right. These things have happened to me. So... (laughs) Being able to comfortably be home and snap a photo and put your artwork up, definitely take advantage of that. Life-changing, yeah. Life-changing, absolutely. The theme of our season two podcast is impact, and we're asking all of our guests this question. What impact do you hope that your work will have? I hope that my artwork has the impact of Even though I said it before and you said it too, but telling the truth about the Black community, there are so many misconceptions, lies, straight up distortions or deletions that need to be fixed. So I hope that when people see my work now and long after I'm gone, that they could see the humanity and see, oh, Black people are proud of their families. Oh, Black people um, love their children and want them to do well. Mm-hmm. Oh, Black fathers are, are, can be doting and sweet and, and affectionate with their children. So I want people to see the truth about Black people. Well, Bisa, thank you so much for joining us. Um, what do you have coming up that you'd like to tell us about? 
Oh, I would love to invite folks if they are anywhere near the city of Chicago to see my exhibit at the Art Institute of Chicago, Bisa Butler Portraits. It is up until September 6th. And in the meantime, if you cannot get to Chicago, I have an exhibit up at the North Museum of Art in New Jersey. I should say I have one piece on exhibit at the North Museum. And then my home gallery is the Claire Oliver Gallery in Harlem. And I'll be showing there from time to time, not right now, but within the year. Really exciting. And where can people find you on social media so they can follow along? You've got a great Instagram presence. Sure. Um, You can find me at Bisa Butler. That's B-I-S-A Butler on Instagram and on Facebook. And my own website is just BisaButler.com. Well, thank you so much again. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It was fun. I hope that you enjoyed the latest episode of the Top Artist Podcast. Thanks to Bisa for chatting with us about her incredible quilts that celebrate Black life. We chatted with her about more topics that we couldn't fit into the episode. So make sure you head to our Instagram at Top Artist Podcast to hear more from Bisa. And don't forget to subscribe to Top Artist Podcast so that you never miss an episode. Or pop on over to podcast.mymodernmet.com and sign up for our newsletter so that you'll get a reminder when new episodes are published and information on our upcoming guests. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Next time, we're talking to Cliff Tan, an architect who makes architecture and feng shui accessible to all. In the meantime, you can get your fix of art and culture at mymodernmet.com. If you're a member, you'll get an ad-free reading experience and other great perks while helping to support the site. Just click the membership link at the top of the screen.